0: Welcome to the Creative Juice Podcast. I am your host, Sam Juice, and I've been working in the entertainment industry for over 15 years. In that time, I have met and worked with amazing and talented individuals, most of which I now call friends. The premise of this show is to talk with professionals in all creative fields. We talk about where they started, where they are now, and what's on the horizon. We also chat about life, current events, and random weird stuff. So thank you for tuning in, and let's get started
1: juice he's never going to stop being the juice
0: my guest today is the owner and executive producer of the postmodern company in denver colorado They are a full-fledged service production company creating compelling and gorgeous content for film, TV, and web. My guest has worked in the production world for many years, being part of big-name films like The Chronicles of Narnia with the L.A. Shop Rhythm and Hues to projects like Beowulf with Sony Pictures. He found his way into TV with shows like The Sopranos, The Shield, and Rescue Me. Other than being a badass in the industry, he is one of the nicest and coolest people to be around. My brother from another mother Finn Seymour. Thanks for being on the show, man. Yeah, it's a treat. What are you guys, what are you guys working on right now? We just finished two spots for Belco Credit
1: Union for um, two different banking products that we're now actually doing a director's cut on, but um, just really cool. It's a 30 second and a 15 second and then basically it's, uh, you know, very choreographed camera movie that comes through past Four different talent in a very tight environment. Each with them holding action to make it look like we've caught them in this one moment in time. Um, you know, it's almost like moving through a still. You kind of move past each one of them with all these 3D elements. The actors being practical elements that we put a bunch of CG in there to to add some atmosphere to it. So that's badass. <clears throat> yeah. So that was pretty cool. We got to shoot on the Sony. Sony Venice, which is amazing. Yeah. Awesome camera and um, great client, great direction. That's, and then on the Audio side, we have a bunch of stuff going on. we uh, Denver Art Museum is bringing a Monet exhibit here in the fall. It's like the potentially the biggest exhibit that they've ever had, and we're building out three tracks of audio tours. One's like a podcast. One's like a a scripted narrative with uh, kid voiceover actors for a kids audio tour.
0: Um, so that's kind of a fun little thing we're working on too. So how was the Sony Venice camera, man? I'm I'm not shot with that yet
1: uh i mean it's great because it gives you a lot more expansion you could don't have to you're not as held to we we really wanted to use a techno crane that would have been the ideal way to shoot the whole thing is to use a techno crane but we couldn't because there's no techno crane in colorado (laughs) right and they're ridiculously expensive so we had to kind of figure out how to work around that a little bit and uh anyway yeah right it's fun
0: Uh, venice was good I, i think you know Yeah. It seems like a pretty sweet camera. Yeah. Where did, where did you, uh, where did you grow up and, and, uh, when did you first get an interest in, in production in the film world?
1: I grew up in Montana in the wilds of Montana where there was no, uh, where creativity was rarely, uh, uh, appreciated. Right. Um, and I was a complete fuck up in high school and then, uh, I would have never thought that. Yeah. No, I'm serious. Yeah.
0: That's crazy. I was
1: president of my sophomore class and I, got kicked
0: out. (laughs) (laughs) It's rare. Presidents
1: don't get kicked out that often. Unfortunately, given the current circumstances, my mom was smart enough to say, you know, maybe you you like movies. Maybe you should think about like going to film school or something. Go like just to get me to kind of go to college. She's Um, like, get out of my house. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I did I kind of went down that path, but then I went and saw I didn't really, I, you know, that was sort of like, okay, maybe I'll do that. And I had just the grade, my grades were just good enough to get into Montana state. And then, uh, I went and saw Pulp Fiction came out. I went and saw the movie theater and I stood up and I was like, I'm going to film school. Dude,
0: that's That's what I'm going to do.
1: I'm going to make movies. It wasn't that uh, direct path from (laughs) uh, a movie theater in Helena, Montana to Los Angeles, but went to film school in Montana, then moved to LA and I started working for this guy who was a notorious, he was one of the most decorated film commercial directors. I think he still is. They used to call, I forget what his nickname is, like the king of, the lion of Khan or something like that. He's won more uh, awards at Cannes than any other commercial director ever. His name's Joe Pitka. Wow. And he's probably- I've heard this guy. He's I've probably- guy. Super old yeah, right? Mid 80s now. Okay. Yeah, uh, early 80s. Anyway, so I went to work for him at a time when he was- still very prevalent he was doing you know he's probably doing two super bowl commercials a year pepsi fedex xerox all the all the top names at the time in this is the early 2000s he was still doing all that stuff uh shooting all over the world so i went and worked for him as a pa and he played basketball wherever he went so i mean they'd they'd go to paris and they would bring a a backboard on set they'd go to (laughs) new mexico he traveled with a backboard it was part of their cube truck with all their gear. Cause he shot too. he had his own, all his own stuff. Uh, the backboard, the basketball setup went along with C stands and everything else. And I, and I could play basketball with him. So that kept me employed. Fortunately, <laughs> just being able to <laughs> play There's basketball. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. So anyway, that, that, that led me to then I had some friends in LA and went from working for Pitca to rhythm and Hughes and then stayed at rhythm and Hughes for quite a while and just sort of kept working my way up into other jobs there, um, matriculating and ended up working on Chronicles of Narnia, which was great for about, I think it was almost two years I was working on that movie. So I went from working on uh, Chronicles of Narnia to I jumped over to Sony Imageworks to work on this Robert Zemeckis film called Beowulf, um, which was a fully- Awesome
0: movie. Yeah. I loved it. It was good. It was good.
1: It was a fully CG motion capture. That was motion capture. Which was just starting to pick up then. And, um, and Sony was building out a lot. They were building out their own studio for that and their own workflow and all their own technology to make that
0: even more efficient. So were you, were you on the VFX side mm-hmm. at this point? Were you a VFX producer? I
1: was a VFX production manager
0: okay. at
1: Imageworks. And at Sony Imageworks at the time, they probably had four or five features going at a time. So while I was there, they were working on the second Chronicles of Narnia. They were working on, I think, Open Season. There was always a Sandler movie going. Because he (laughs) had a deal. He was at Columbia. He was at Sound. His office is right by Imageworks. So there was always some sort of Sandler thing going on. Fortunately, I had a friend who was executive producer at a post house in Santa Monica called Riot, which was a really big, uh, great post house in Santa Monica. And they were going to open up a features arm for visual effects and post. So she said, Hey, I, I'm starting this up. I'd really like to bring you on as producer. And I was like, cool. Cause I'm ready to bounce out of here. I'm just not, this is just not what I want to do. And so I came, I went over there and that opened the door to all kinds of stuff. Cause Riot had a pipeline, visual effects, editing, compositing and color correction with, uh, in company with, in connection with company three okay. for, um, like pretty much every major spot or half the major spots in the country. So I got, so I ended up working on a bunch of big commercials and then there was a bunch of ep- episodic work too, which went, fled into Rescue Me and we we're working on HBO stuff. So I worked on the last season, The Sopranos, Rescue Me, The Shield, and there was features
0: in there too. The word producer, I feel has so many meanings in the industry. Um, yeah. You know, most people outside our world just thinks it's the money man. They're like, oh, the producer, is the money man. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, That's so true. You know, so yeah. I know, <laughs> what do you... You know, can you tell me like what being a producer really is? Is there a way to define what a producer actually is?
1: Uh, I mean, I think the key, I'd say like the core responsibilities of the producer are to make sure that all of the details are in order. Let's just assume for a second that, again, we're talking about a non, for lack of a better term, a non-creative producer, right? So, you know, that's another distinction when you're watching the credits for The Simpsons and there's 10 executive producers, they're writers. They're called producers, but they're writers. Really? Tele- oh yeah, television, if you're watching, um, this is a bad example because I'm dating myself, but like, <laughs> if you're watching Arrested Development or you're okay. watching uh, any show, any television show that's scripted and you're seeing producer and executive producer come up on screen, those are writers. You'll, you will never, you'll hardly ever see a credit that says written by, unless it's a piece like, say, Game of Thrones. Something like that, that, that episode was written by, but the reality is for most, you know, quote unquote network television, all those producer titles are writers to answer your question gonna speak to like the sort of the non-creative producer, their job for the role of the producer is to make sure that all of the details are in place. All the logistics are in place, the schedule, the budget, the legalities, everything is in place so that all of the creative entities on the job can walk in do their job and exercise on the creative without having to think about those other things, right? So you're a DP, you don't wanna show up, you're gonna shoot and you have to worry about, do we have this permitted? What's the deal for this talent? How long are they on for? Do we have rights to use this? Have we, are we able to show that logo or do we need to Greek that out? Like that's not right. So you and the sound guy and the art director and whoever else, wardrobe, makeup, you need to be able to show up and know exactly where your lane is for what you're supposed to do the producer's job is
0: to make sure that all those lanes are clean and defined Well, it's actually a really good way to define to what a producer does yeah and that, that's interesting to back to the producer for for tv shows i had no idea that the producer of, of on the credit was the writer yeah is that's that why. how
1: it still is yeah really yeah. yep yep i mean i think i'm thinking about that now and it's like well i don't you know on HBO shows. Mind. Yeah, like on HBO show, you know any you know any of those network or not network shows, but you know Netflix, all that stuff. I'd have to pay a little more attention to. It. And of course now, everybody has the option to skip the intro, so nobody reads the opening credits anyway. But um, <laughs> right. but yeah, if you're next time you're watching uh, anything where you see those in the beginning, like let's say you're watching Adult Swim or. Always Sunny in Philadelphia, those kinds of shows you'll just see, there's probably nine writers on that show.
0: You know, most of us actually get our stars in places like LA, New York, right? It's like, it's the Mecca for, for what we do. And then a lot of us leave for various reasons, but we still have the passion for film. So curious, why, why did you leave LA?
1: We left LA because, I mean, uh, so my wife, Trista was at a producer as well. She was working for a company called Zoic and we were doing similar things, uh, both producing visual effects. She was working in episodic stuff and I was working in features and commercials and um, we left because wanted to raise a family and we didn't want to keep doing LA, you know, you know, this, the hours in other markets are brutal. We were working long days and we knew that if we were going to like start a family and all that stuff, we just, we weren't, someone else is going to be raising our kids Cause we were going to be, we would have a longer commute and work in crazy hours. I worked, um, before we left, I was working on Hairspray, the music, the movie, not the musical, but the movie that is a musical. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I was at Riot and we were working on Hairspray and Riot was in Santa Monica. It was three blocks away from the REI in Santa Monica. I about seven o'clock at night for this. We were working on the opening shot to Hairspray. It was very long. And it was going to take a lot longer to get done. And we were right up against the deadline. I walked down REI. I bought a brand new sleeping bag. I came back. I slept on the couch for three hours. And then I got up and we worked another 10, 12 hours. And I used that sleeping bag for the rest of the week, different times. It was like, this is, I'm not doing this anymore. I can't keep doing this. If we're going to have a life that involves another human being. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So we, we, I was born in Denver and I had family here and, I knew I, this was a good medium between Montana and LA. And so I was like, let's, yeah, let's make the jump.
0: Yeah. That's, uh, I got my start in LA is also in the post-production world. Do an audio post, believe it or not. Um, but man, I, have I had the same experiences. There were times that I would be working 15, 16 hour days, go into the, the lounge, sleep on the couch and seriously wake up three, four hours later and to keep doing what, what I was doing. And that happened multiple times, but granted at that time I was 21 years old and you just, you love it, right? You're 21, but you you only love it for so many times until you start realizing, okay, like this might not be what I want to do for the rest, for the rest of my life, these type of hours. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I
1: think, you know, I look back on that now and I, I don't think it was an unwise decision to leave. I, my career trajectory was going really nowhere but up when I left. And I had a couple of people tell me like, what are you doing? You're, this is crazy. Um, because
0: so, you left a pretty sweet job. Yeah, they were just you like, had, you know, good Yeah, and, I had,
1: when I was at Riot, there was somebody there who was in a pretty high position. and He said, We were grooming you to be the next executive producer. And I'm like, Wow, I, I had no idea. And um,
0: which so would have been great. They those but, hours being worked by, by Ben. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. But it was like, you know, it was, it's like at what cost, you know? I mean, we played hard. We worked on gr- amazing projects. I mean, in, in the last year and a half I was there, I was working on, um, you know, I worked on. Die Hard Four, I worked on The Sopranos, on Rescue Me, and Shield, and all that stuff we talked about. So these great projects, um, but it comes at a price, you know. And it's just like, I guess you know, for me, it wasn't worth the price.
0: So you moved from LA here to Denver, right? Were you just done with production at this point? You felt yeah. that you were going to go? Oh, you were. I was like, I'm going to find something else.
1: I was done. I didn't think there was anything in Denver. That was the other thing. I didn't think there was a, a bigger, a big enough market here that I could do something similar. So I wrote that off, and then I had the intention to take over a, a work in a totally different company and take over a business that uh, that was here that my mom had started, and run that business. And I just really, first of all, didn't love that, <laughs> and also <laughs> yeah. uh, really just missed production. I missed being in the in the business. That's a broad air quotes of the business, but or, or the industry, the industry. I missed it. <laughs> so I um, so then I got a job at High Noon doing you know reality television stuff which i never thought i'd do but i got a post-production supervisor job there um i offered there and then i stayed there for like three and a half years and i worked on dozens of episodes of shows for home primarily it was hgtv and then i did a couple projects for vh1 and just as a post-soup and then spun out of that and
0: interviewed at postmodern to take on the producer role at postmodern and then here we are. So we, you know, we're always growing as individuals and uh, certain people are always pushing forward. And I know you have that trait, w- but with that said, when the opportunity arose to, to purchase postmodern, you, were you just all in or did you, you what, what was going through your head at that point? About a year before I had started talking to David Emerich, the original owner of postmodern, he and I started talking
1: about the, the transition to ownership I had this sort of epiphany coming out of an award ceremony where I went, I don't, I don't really like the way we positioned ourselves on this. And the only way we're going to do it, the way I think is right is if I'm the owner. Hmm. I hadn't really thought about that ever before, but I just went, there's, I just have to have ownership of this. I have to have full ownership of it. So it was at that point where I went, okay, maybe that's something I'm going to do. Suffice to say, I basically took a, I like to call it a five week sabbatical. in Postmodern. I I remember that. Yeah. And (laughs) that's a five week sabbatical. And then I came back and we, started moving on ownership. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. But it was in that, it was going to that award ceremony and us not winning an award, sadly as it is. It, was not the, it wasn't the ego of the fact that we didn't win the award. It was the fact that we were, we weren't put in the right category. We weren't, we didn't put ourselves in the right position to win that made me feel like that was kind of a microcosm of a lot of other things that were going on with the business that I felt like I should, I should helm or
0: whatever, steer, I guess is a better way to say it. So that was the moment you're like, I got to, this is, I got to, I got to take over because so. the opportunity was there. I thought it was like one week. David's like, Hey, you want to buy this? You're like, yeah, sure. Oh, <laughs> you know? no. like, oh. I had no idea. This was like two oh, years in the making. Oh <laughs> dude, it
1: was, it was so much, no <laughs> way. It was just so much the opposite of that. It was like, my God, I mean, Trista, I should say, you know, for the record, like I don't, I don't own postmodern. I am half the ownership of postmodern. Trista owns the other half of my wife, but man, she, at the time she was at her corporate job and I, you know, it was ultimately, it was on me at that point to decide whether this was the right thing for me to do as a career. She had her career, um, but she had to put up with me really hemming and hawing and worrying and running the numbers and freaking out and thinking it was the greatest job or idea in the world and the worst idea in the world. And I mean, that took, that took like a year and a half. It took, a, it took a long time for us to get to a point where we could actually sign papers and be the owners
0: were there. So other than, other than those things, were there any like curve balls that throw in your way that you weren't expecting when you, when you took over postmodern? No, I, I, no, nothing beyond just like the naivete of
1: like buying and then running a business. Yeah. You know, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't have any aspirations to be an entrepreneur ever. I was always going to do something, crea- you know, just, I'm just doing creative stuff. That's what I'm doing. And then, and producing and all that stuff. So I never, you know, some people like lick their chops to run a business, like, when they're like 18 years old and they know what to do and they know. So no, nothing like, Oh my God, there's a, you know, there's a dead body over here. (laughs) (laughs) Or, uh, Oh my God, there's a, you know, $150,000 lien on the building. You know, none of that stuff. stuff. Just the should have read some more business books before I did.
0: this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's nothing like being thrown in the fire, man. Yeah. It's the best way to learn. Now I've experienced it. Unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know,
1: yeah. You've run your own business. It doesn't matter. I mean, sure, there's more overhead here, but I mean, right. you know exactly what it's like.
0: So our, our industry, we'll, we'll, we'll roll it back a little bit. Uh, so our industry is, is changing so much. And, and what's cool about Postmodern is, is you guys are, you're truly a full-fledged production company. It's a one-stop shop, you know, from script to final delivery. Um, can you tell me the advantage of having everything under one roof?
1: Yeah. So yeah, being sort of full spectrum, is uh, incredibly advantageous for us internally in terms of just like, I I know this doesn't sound like that they should, these two words should go together, but creative efficiencies. Um, So it's huge advantage there. And I'll, and I'll get specific to that. And then also I think for clients, they say this often it's, it's huge. It's a huge benefit for them because oftentimes if you've got a color session that's in a different facility than your audio session, and you've got an editor in between all of those things, you've got three different entities that you as the director producer have got to coordinate, validate to make sure that these files are correct, that they're going to the right, you know, all that stuff is unfortunately a barrier that shouldn't exist in most cases at a high level. You should be able to get that stuff at one place creatively. It's fantastic because you're able to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't like that. Or let's see what this new read recording VO right now. Let's pop this back into the editor and see how that times out. Boom. That's right next door. Or, with the, On just the picture side, it's like, I'm going to slip this shot, but let's, you know what, we could just, let's just change the tone on this, shoot it over to the color who's across the hall, boom. We're making that change right there, and it comes back over. The video-making process, I'm dumbing it down here, it, it's a chorus of people. It's a collection of people. It's like, right, we, it's, it's not like other mediums, print, even radio, where you've got just a few people involved. Make it, when you're making it at the right level, there's dozens of people involved, right? The highest level, there's hundreds of people involved that take that's what's required to get in a result. So a client is really putting a lot of faith and trust and reliability in whoever is going to be doing it, you know, you're shooting it, you're directing it, you're handing it off to the next person in the process, the people in the process, you have a lot of tr- you have to have trust and reliability that they're going to take what you did and make sure that it meets all the requirements for that person that's was is trusting us and trusted you. And so that whole thing, that whole process, the whole chain of all that, I think the more trust and respect for the person that you're working with in collaboration with or handing it off to like, like anything, it's, it's huge. So to be able to look each other in the eye and get all of that secondary communication is enormous. Right.
0: It's huge. You I mean, know? Even down to like body language, man, you can't oh, totally stuff over the phone or an email. Yeah. And I mean, you, you, know?
1: you, you know, this is, <laughs> It's not foreign from any other interaction you have, you know, when right. you're at a restaurant and you're talking to a waiter and they look shifty, they're moving around. You're like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think that dude got my order right, right? Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> you know I mean? right. You can tell. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if you type it out online and you send it in, you know, hopefully they'll get it right there yeah. too but you don't you can't confirm that either if you're right. sitting there and you're looking at somebody, you're
0: like eh, the guy didn't get it he doesn't know what <laughs> yeah. i'm talking about right right Right? Yeah. <laughs> and you can ask some follow-up questions yeah
1: <laughs> same thing you know you're like talking to the editor and you're like i told him 422 i don't think he knows what the fuck i <laughs> yeah. said right you know? right right
0: <laughs> so Oh man. yeah could you tell me one of the craziest or stressful productions if you can remember that you've been on
1: i'll tell you a funny story okay it involves a, funny a, story. involves a celebrity um so I was working in, I was at, I was in LA and we were working on, there was a show on FX called Dirt. It starred Courtney Cox and it was about uh, basically the equivalent of like the National Enquirer. And she was the editor of the of this, of this magazine. I think the magazine was called Dirt. Anyway, long story short is they wanted to shoot this promo. The promo is that um, she is at the end of this infinity pool looking over Hollywood, whole thing takes place in LA. It's overlooking Hollywood. It's in the Hollywood Hills. She's at the end of this infinity pool. Beautiful mansion. She, the camera is on the other side of the pool. She's at the end of the pool. She, we see her. She dives into the infinity pool. She swims up. And when she comes up out of the water, she's got a, a necklace on that says dirt on it. We were told that Courtney Cox, no way is going to be seen in a, in, a, in a bathing suit. No way you can shoot with her not feeling good about her body, not going to happen. So we shoot the entire thing at this mansion with a body double. And then we're (laughs) going to shoot her on green at a stage and do a whole face replacement. So it's her face, body double. Very difficult to do. (laughs) Extremely difficult to do. Right. Especially back then. Yeah. And budgets, I won't even tell you. So lots of money, lots of resources. We get to the shoot for, we've, we've got, you know, we do the whole shoot with the with two models. We have two models we do the whole shoot. Then we get to the stage the next day or two days later to shoot all the green screen stuff with Courtney. And I have to put these tracking markers on her. Me and the visual effects. We, we have to put these tracking markers on her. And this is a crew of probably 75, 80 people. Um, we go to put these tracking markers on her. And she says, what are these for? And we said, well, this is where we have to put these marks on you because this is how we, you know, this is how we can then in, go in and basically, you know, digitally take your face put on the body so what what body double and we said well we're you know we're putting you on she's like why why don't you guys just shoot me i I, i'll just go shoot it let's go shoot it so like the whole exhaustive process that yeah and now i don't know how she you know maybe she did say that early on what you never know but like literally we're talking about a good million and a half dollars Tons of time, tons of people, all of this. And if that was truly what she, you know, would have done in the beginning, could have avoided half of it. And we ended up shooting <laughs> it. We ended up shooting it and it didn't look very good. Um, it didn't quite match, but the reality was like, dude. So did she do it? Did she
0: get in her bathing suit and you guys Yeah, she was it? in her bathing suit. Yeah, she, she was so in the- she ba- actually did do it. So you guys she went did, back to the- We little, didn't, the no,
1: mansion. no. She, we just ended up doing the green screen. But she, at that point, it was so late in the day and she was so like- she, you could tell that she was pissed that someone hadn't said if you, all you got to do is jump in this pool and come up and get this necklace on.
0: She would have done. It. Oh man. So, that sounds like a published problem. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, <clears throat> I always love working with you guys and the whole, and the whole team here. Um, yeah, I, I hope to love do you. some, I do love you too, man. Yeah. I, ho- I hope to do some great projects with you guys, guys soon in the future. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, man. It's, it's been a pleasure and I can't wait to see more of what, what comes out from, from Postmodern.
1: Thanks, man. Thank you for having me. And I can't wait to see, I can't wait to hear all of these. Yeah. It'll be fun.
0: That's a wrap on this episode of the Creative Juice Podcast. Be on the lookout for more shows every week. You can check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Google Play or directly at the creativejuice.com. That's the creative, J O O S dot com. Stay creative. Thank you.